Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 49. After Hours with Dr. Charlie Starr. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. However, today is a Thursday, meaning that this is an after-hours episode. And today, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Charlie Starr. Dr. Charlie W. Starr is an Associate Professor of English at Alderson Broadus University in West Virginia. He teaches, writes, and lectures on classical American literature, film, theology, and on the works of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Dr. Starr has published numerous scholarly essays, over 100 popular articles, a dozen chapters for book anthologies, and seven books, fiction, nonfiction, and scholarly, including The Fawn's Bookshelf, C.S. Lewis on Why Myth Matters, and Light, C.S. Lewis's first and final short story. He has published over a dozen never-before-seen C.S. Lewis manuscripts and has been hailed as the world's leading expert on C.S. Lewis's handwriting. Dr. Starr, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you, David. I'm delighted to be with you, and thank you for that kind introduction. That sounds like a really interesting fellow. I'd like to meet him sometime. I'm really pleased we could have you on the show. I've heard your name bandied about for the last few years, and you were recently on Michael Jehoski's podcast. And since we're doing Screwtape, I knew it was finally time to have you on and talk about the Archangel Fragment. Right. Yes. Wonderful. Well, let's get on and do a little bit of housekeeping. First of all, the quote of the week. There was no question as to what the quote of the week was going to be today. It comes from the 1961 preface to the Screwtape Letters, where Lewis writes, Ideally, Screwtape's advice to Wormwood should have been balanced by an archangelical advice to the patient's guardian angel. Without this, the picture of human life is lopsided. But who could supply the deficiency? Even if a man, and he would have to be a far better man than I, could scale the spiritual heights required, what answerable style could he use? For the style would really be part of the content. Mere advice would be no good. Every sentence would have to smell of heaven. I'm sure we're going to be talking about that later. But the next thing is the drink of the week, which for me today is chrysanthemum tea. And this is what I go for whenever I go to a Chinese restaurant. Uh, It doesn't have the same bitter uh, taste that jasmine tea does when it's oversteeped. So that's that's my top tip next time you go to a Chinese restaurant. Uh, Dr. Starr, are you drinking anything? I am. I have my Lewis-sized teacup here. (laughs) Um, And it is filled with green tea with some um, half and half and uh, a little bit of stevia. Lovely. Although I have it on good authority that no book was long enough and no cup of tea was big enough for Lewis. (laughs) Although if he drank out of anything, I'm sure it would have been a Pints with Jack branded mug, which should be coming out in the next couple of months. (laughs) Oh, that's terrific. Now, we don't have a new patron supporter to toast today, so I just thought, We would toast our guardian angels because they work very hard and I very rarely ever say thank you. So cheers. Cheers. So Dr. Stark, could you begin by telling us a little bit more about yourself, how you came to have an interest in Lewis and how that became part of your career? Uh, Certainly. Uh, Grew up in Texas, spent uh, about half my life in Kentucky and now in West Virginia. I've uh, been a high school teacher, a college professor. Uh, in English and humanities, um, dabbling also in some film. Uh, first read C.S. Lewis in college. Um, I remember reading the Narnia books the summer after my freshman year uh, and uh, read Lewis off and on then for the next decade or so. And just before moving from being a high school teacher to a college teacher, I read Till We Have Faces. And at that point, I was hooked for the rest of my life. Um <laughs> Of course, as a high school teacher, you don't have a lot of time to spend doing um, research or, or, or writing. Uh, so when I knew I was going to go to college uh, to be a teacher, um, and I knew that they would want me to uh, do some additional schoolwork as well as um, uh, some uh, research work, I said, well, then it's going to be on C.S. Lewis, Till We Have Faces is what 
what made that happen. And so I, I became obsessed then, I'd say around 1995 or six with Lewis, um, was able to write my doctoral dissertation on Lewis's epistemology, uh, which was a great deal of fun, and have been teaching Lewis for 23, 24 years now. Delightful. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you're known as an expert in C.S. Lewis's handwriting. Yes. So I have to ask, how does one become an expert in that? Um, by by providence, or I suppose Gandalf might say by luck, if luck is what you could call it. Yeah, very much by accident. So th this happened while I was working on my first Lewis book, uh, the book about his light uh, story, which we'll talk more about a little bit later, I know. But part of the problem with uh, the light short story that Lewis wrote was um, authenticating uh, not only the story, but its date. And so looking at the handwriting of the story and then examining Lewis's handwriting overall became very significant to that. And one of the lessons I learned very early is that Lewis's handwriting changed throughout his lifetime. Sometimes the changes were deliberate and immediate. Sometimes they were gradual in a, in a kind of evolution. Um, and if I realized if I worked hard enough, I could map out all of Lewis's handwriting throughout his entire lifetime, uh, essentially a year at a time. And uh, then I would be able to take a look at the handwriting and say, well, he wrote this within this two-year period, this three-year period. Uh, later in life, it's more like a five-year period, sometimes 10, depending. Um, but even, even in the 50s and 60s, when his handwriting stabilized, there are still little changes that you can look for. Um, sometimes I can get it down to a year and a half. And then when you mix that with external evidence, uh, evidence from, that you know of from the publication dates for a text or from his biography, uh, you can often narrow down a piece of Lewis handwriting to within um, uh, a month or, or at least a year. Uh, so to be able to authenticate the light short story and to be able to put a date to it, I had to learn Lewis's handwriting. And since then, it's been a, a, an avenue for working with Lewis texts, um, original manuscripts on a, on a much wider basis, which is just a blast. Anytime you can hold an original Lewis manuscript in your hand, or, or even if it's just looking at the pictures of some manuscript that's never been published, and uh, either you're dealing with it or somebody sends it to you and says, hey, can you help me out with the dates on this? Well, then it uh, it becomes uh, delightful. It's also a little bit silly because I have I can claim with confidence that I've probably spent two or 300 hours looking at uh, the letter F in the handwriting of C.S. Lewis because for some strange reason it all came down to the letter F uh, was is the primary indicator for figuring out a, a particular Lewis date. That's really impressive. <laughs> See, I'm of the generation where I can do cursive. I very rarely ever do. And whenever I have to read somebody else's cursive, I just sigh. It's like, ugh, why couldn't they just print this or type it in on a computer and then just print that out? They'll just make life so much easier. <laughs> You're making me feel wonderfully old. Here's something that you and I can enjoy if we can't uh, show it to the folks on the podcast. But just real quick, there is a first edition. Of an experiment in criticism. That's the English first edition. Ooh, signed by the man himself. How about that? Yeah. So one of the fun things I get to do is I get to um, authenticate Lewis signatures for a uh, uh, high-end bookseller, and uh, that's uh, that was part of the pay that I got for doing that once. <laughs> and hopefully, an avenue into getting some good deals for yourself. Oh yeah. <laughs> Well, let's turn and talk about the Archangel Fragment. Okay. Because I heard about this about a year ago, I want to say. And so when we started the Screwtape Letters, I knew I wanted to have you on to talk about this. I had read about it on Brenton Dickerson's blog. So can you just give us the background to all of this? Where did the fragment come from that is now known as the Archangel Fragment? Mm-hmm. So this began um, in 2011, while uh, once again, I was writing the um, light uh, book. Uh, I got to go to Oxford. I got to uh, go to the Bodleian Library and um, work with um, Lewis's brainstorming notebooks. That's a good way of thinking about them. And there are probably half a dozen or, or so of these notebooks with um, 
more in the possession of uh, the Walter Hooper estate. Uh, and in the notebooks, Lewis would simply open uh, sometimes to random pages or just to the next blank page. And he would write notes or um, begin work on a particular text or the like. Uh, one of these notebooks um, is sort of the famous notebook number five, and it is, it is at the Bodleian. And um, I was working with that notebook in particular because it contains um, a version of the light story. There are two manuscript versions of light. Uh, one is uh, the one in the notebook is commonly known as the man born blind. And you may have run across that in Walter Hooper's uh, collection of Lewis's short pieces called uh, The Dark Tower and Other Stories. Uh, the Man Born Blind is um, an earlier version of the story. That's one of the things I had to figure out. But I did want to look at that manuscript, uh, which is in that notebook. Uh, then that notebook contains a number of uh, other just wonderful gems, including the poem, uh, the narrative poem, Lancelot, um, Lewis's poem, uh, Finchley Avenue. Um, and then I was flipping through the notebook and uh, I ran across a passage um, and I'll read just a little bit of the passage to you, how about? And it begins, for this, my dear, is the true delight to take a creature whom, if the king permitted and our own will were so strangely perverted, we could with one touch of the little finger turn into nothingness. And then it goes on from there. And I was looking at this text, which is really just a paragraph that consists of only two sentences, uh, the majority of the entire thing being a single sentence. Um, and that's that's rather wonderful. Um, I was looking at this paragraph and the material written right before it were some notes on Paradise Lost. And of course, Lewis was writing his um, preface to Paradise Lost uh, in the early 40s at the same time that he was writing Tape, And um, he was doing a series of lectures on, on Milton. So at first I thought the text might just be something having to do with uh, Paradise Lost, with a, a, some sort of an angelic uh, point of view uh, or the like. Um, and then when I flipped the page to what we would call the, the verso side um, of the manuscript, I saw a, a strange little sentence that referenced something like uh, the children teaching the bears by the bend in the river. That's not quite word for word, but it's something rather like that. And I, I said to myself, wait a minute, I have seen that before. Where have I seen that before? And I had to think about it a great deal and I really couldn't confirm it till I got back to the States. Um, but there is a um, famous Lewis collector named uh, Ed Brown and, and Ed passed on to meet Jack a few years ago. Um, but he had a, a, a wonderful uh, collection um, including every Lewis first edition uh, ever, uh, and usually with the dust jacket, uh, which now belongs to uh, Taylor University in Upland, Indiana. But at one point, Ed owned a copy of the screw tape letters, a, a first edition that was heavily annotated by Lewis. And uh, on um, the back cover, I think it is, or on one blank page, Lewis had written something like, I tried to get a letter, the letters from the other side, from the archangel side. But the only thing that ever came through was, and again, it's something like children training their bears in the cliffs by the river. Uh, so the, the wording wasn't exactly the same as in notebook five, but it was close enough that I was able to make the connection. And that forced me then to back up and realize that the text that I just read a portion of to you was in fact Lewis's singular attempt to write an archangel letter. As per the text that you read from the 1961 preface where Lewis said what I really wanted to do was write an archangel letter, a series of letters that would go side by side with Screwtape's letters, um, I just couldn't do it. Uh, but it did try it once. And um, I, had run, I had just sort of run into it by accident uh, in the notebook. In the most recent publication of Zainzucht, a friend of mine named Joe Rickey has suggested even which screw tape letter the Archangel fragment might correspond to, because there is a screw tape letter that talks about um, teaching the child to believe that mine means that the teddy bear that he owns um, is the one that he can rip the head and, 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 and arms off. So there might be a bear's connection there um, or something like that. 
Um, but the strange occurrence then of the children and the bears is Lewis uh, having fun with a, a very interesting idea that the letters had to be translated. They had to be translated from some angelic uh, language. And that's the only thing that made sense when he attempted to translate it. And this is a little conceit that he developed early on while working on screw tape, which I'm sure you've read about in Brenton's website, where he, his blog site, where Lewis at one point had intended to connect the screw tape letters to his Out of the Silent Planet. Um, there he said that he learned the language of old solar from ransom. And uh, that's how he was able to translate the letters. Well, that little note didn't make it to the final introduction of the original screw tape letters, but um, uh, it was really quite something when Brenton and I discovered it each sort of separately. And I think I was the first person to ever mention it, but he was the first person to actually publish it. Um, that lost Lewis preface connecting it to, to connecting a screw tape to ransom. So that's kind of fun. Well, then clearly when, uh, when the fictional Lewis attempted to translate the letters from the archangel, the only thing that ever came through was this obscure reference to bears and rivers or something like that. So he couldn't quite pull off the translation. But then the archangel fragment was Lewis's singular attempt, if you will, to try to write an archangel letter. And I imagine he just didn't, he didn't think he could put up with the style. Well, then let's fast forward then. In 2011, I discovered that. I was busy working on other projects. Uh, I had to finish the light book. Then I got involved in Lewis's handwriting, and there was a publication there with the Wade Center um, and doing a lot of um, transcription work and dating of manuscripts for the Wade Center. Finally, I got to a point uh, four years ago or so where I, I said, this, here's this fragment, that, and nothing's happening to it. And Brenton has a, an intimate connection to uh, screw tape through having discovered the one text. And I thought to myself, well, what if I um, talk to Brenton and see if he wants to work with this and we can do something together on it and see if we can get it published. And, and so I, you know, I texted him and I said, Hey, did you know about uh, this Archangel fragment? And he said, no, I had no idea. And I said, well, you want to work on it together? And he said, yeah, in fact, I'm going to Oxford this fall. I can look at it again and, and confirm um, your your findings and that sort of thing. Um, and in the end, then, he wrote what I thought was just an absolutely brilliant study of the Archangel Fragment, which we were then um, able to publish together in uh, volume 13, 29, year 2019 of Zainzucht, the C.S. Lewis Journal. So folks can read it there. And then it has also been reprinted in volume 20 in Joe Rickey's follow-up uh, essay. Um, where Joe uh, discovered a mistake that um, was um, not the fault either of Joe or Brenton or myself, but of, actually of Ed Brown uh, in his book, um, which uh, first introduced us to the concept. And, uh, um, and, and so there needed to be a correction made, and Joe did a very nice job of doing that for us, and then also making a connection to the, uh, the teddy bear uh, letter. So uh, the Archangel Fragment, yeah. Um, make sure you make sure you get a hold of Zane Zucht, um 2019 um, and uh, read our introduction to it and then read uh, Brenton's very excellent um, exposition about the Archangel Fragment. That's so cool. Yes. <laughs> I just love the idea of somebody going through, well, I mean, it will never happen to me, but I just love the idea of somebody going through my, my, my jotting pads years and years later and managing to produce a paper out of a single sentence that I wrote. But that actually bridges me into something that I wanted to ask because we've had scholars on the show before and they talk about going to the Bodleian and all of the rules that they're not allowed to photograph things, etc. Can you just explain what the rules are and why? Why is all this stuff not scanned and up on the internet for everyone to see? Oh boy, that's a that's a great question. And there there, there are some texts that, that are. So for example, uh, Walter Hooper donated... Um, some of Lewis's books to the UNC Chapel Hill uh, library. And those, I believe, are entirely online. So you can flip the pages and see where Lewis wrote his annotations in the books. Uh, so some of that does go on. Uh, the Wade Center has, um, I think, even less freedom uh, than the Bodleian does in, in that regard. And those are the two main places that you want to go for research. You, there are some very nice things at Taylor University. 
a few nice pieces at um, the Lanier Theological Library in Houston, which most people don't know about. And those pieces are going to be actually released in next year's uh, Zane Zucht volume, put together by myself and Dr. Crystal Hurd. Uh, so some nice pieces there, uh, nice pieces at Taylor. But the, you know, the Graceland of Lewis studies is the Wade Center, uh, <laughs> fo- followed by then um, the Bodleian. And they each have some things that the other don't have, though they do a great a great deal of sharing. The C.S. Lewis Company does make claims on copyright. And so um, the Wade wants to keep in good standing with the, the Lewis Company. Uh, so they do have very limited rules in regards to what you can uh, take pictures of uh, and the like. Uh, there is some room for some of that. Um, at the Bodleian, as I understand it, you actually can take pictures if you have permission from the Lewis Company. And then I believe uh, the Bodleian asks that you also donate digital copies of the pictures to the Bodleian so that in the long term, I suppose they will have them available. I don't know that they have them available yet online, but uh, eventually um, they hope to. For the most part, though, um, with these uh, notebooks and the like, we've uh, we've got to go and do the work ourselves, uh, get them transcribed ourselves and that sort of thing. Now, I mentioned Notebook 5 to you. Brenton was did uh, receive permission uh, to copy the Notebook 5 um, pages, to take pictures of them. And then he and I have worked with those pages. And um, currently I'm looking to see if we can transcribe the entire notebook and then go back to the Lewis Company and talk about a possible publication. So they're very good at letting you uh, make transcriptions of texts. Um, It's possible to get with permission, it's possible to get pictures of the original manuscript so that you can transcribe them. And then after that, if there's any publication involved, you have to go back to the Lewis Company, um, as well as other folks, depending on who owns the original manuscripts, and, and get a variety of permissions. Returning to the fragment itself, I don't think I've ever heard anybody ever trying to do their own angel version of screw tape, whereas I've come across lots of different versions of people trying to mimic screw tape and giving their own hellish advice. But I can't really think of anybody that's tried very seriously to do the angelic version. Do you think that Lewis is right in his assessment in that preface that it's basically not possible that nothing could drip of heaven in that in a such a saturated manner as it would have to? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's a matter of two things. I think it's a matter of content and style. So, you know, the voice of an angel, I mean, that's even a, a phrase we use in our, in, our, in our language to refer to somebody with a beautiful musical voice. The voice of an angel, for all, for all we know, would be musical. And, and could that voice then be captured? Although it is captured in the biblical text from time to time when somebody shows up to make an announcement. Uh, and maybe occasionally in Dante. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, you know, boy, and when you think of portrayals of heaven or of angels, you automatically think of just how few there are. Dante in, in the Paradiso being, you know, the, the, the great, uh, wonderful example. And then there's a beautiful moment at the ending of George MacDonald's Lilith, um, where you get a heavenly vision. Or, um, of course, the last battle uh, with, with Lewis or the end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where things become sort of angelic or, or, or heavenly. Um, the great divorce. But boy, it's just rare that anyone tries to pull off heaven and pull it off successfully. I remember when the um, the first Lord of the Rings film came out, The Fellowship of the Ring, and I thought those films were uh, good adaptations. You know, um, film has to adapt uh, literature. It can't it can't just put a put a book on and 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 there you have it. Um, in film, um, it'd be you know 70, 80 hours long, uh, but. <laughs> I'm okay with it. Yeah, that might not be such a bad thing. But so I thought it was a great adaptation. But one of the complaints that I thought was fair about um, the first film was that uh, Peter Jackson's much better at pulling off orcs than he is pulling off elves. So if elves are a kind of angelic counterpart to orcs, which in Tolkien's mythology isn't entirely accurate, but 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 sort of, then you know the or- the orcs are far the uruk high of Saruman are far worse then Galadriel is good. And of course, I loved Galadriel. I thought it was a great portrayal, but there's people, human beings have a difficult time pulling off heaven and pulling off the angelic. Um, And I'm sure that has something to do with our fallenness. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see that then in in superhero storytelling too. You know, in the '60s, all the superheroes were 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 just good guys. All right, and and those were stories written for kids. But when in the '70s uh, we wanted to try to adapt comic books and try to make them more adult or adapt them to the cynicism of the '70s, where our heroes were were no longer John Wayne; they were Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry mo- movies, that sort of thing. You know, we started darkening the dark night. We started developing a Wolverine who is the best there is at what he does, but what he does isn't very nice. <laughs> the two characters who held on the longest were Captain America and Superman. Uh, but then think of how long it took for us to really produce films in which Captain America and Superman were very, very good and yet still believable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, they're what they pulled off with Captain America was just terrific. Uh, you get a really good guy. And uh, the rest of the characters, you know, they, they all have their problems that they got to deal with. Captain America was my favorite, which hurts a little bit to say as an Englishman. But <laughs> I loved it for that very reason, that we had a character who wasn't cynical, who was just good, mm. even when things start getting complicated in Civil War. Uh, and yeah, I think that's a tremendous achievement. Well, there are three, no, four other topics that I wanted to bring up before, while I've got you on the phone. And since we're talking about movies, I wanted to get your thoughts on the upcoming Netflix Narnia series, if it ever sees the light of day following COVID, etc. Just in broad strokes, what do you think they should do? What do you hope that they're going to actually, you, you, particularly because you mentioned there that adaptation is necessary. And I completely agree. I think actually some of the worst Narnian adaptations is when they've just slavishly followed the text. Mm. At worst, it's just been a bit boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in other cases, they've innovated wildly and that's irritated me for other reasons. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that on that upcoming series when it actually makes the light of day? Yeah, um, I, suppose, I suppose I have two minds. One, I'd love to see um, the four books that have not been made into big blockbusters made into big blockbusters as standalone films. So there's my one mind. The other mind says, let's start over um, and let's do episodic storytelling, um, like with Game of Thrones, but PG or G rated, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, let's try to be true to the text, as true to the text as possible, while also producing adaptation uh, and making them filmic. Uh, so if we take the um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe movie uh, from now over a decade ago um, as um, as a good emblem, here we have a movie that I thought was a fair adaptation. It, it stuck to the original text pretty well, but they also did some embellishing for the sake of film. Uh, there's a there's a gigantic battle sequence, uh, for example, at the end of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Well, there is a battle sequence in the book, and it doesn't it it isn't described for very long. But film really calls for spectacle, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, film calls for a big battle sequence like that. So I thought that was fair. When the kids are trying to cross the ice on the river and they end up floating on little tiny icebergs down the river, that got quite a ways away from uh, the text. But I didn't mind that too much um, because, again, we we came back to the text. And I thought that the, the fairest... Uh, critique of that line, the witch in the wardrobe film was the one given by um, Lou Marcos, who uh, essentially said the film becomes too much about the choices that the kids make and not enough about the choice that Aslan makes. Um, And so that drifted a little bit. Uh, And I thought that was a fair critique, but otherwise I was really happy with that film. But then with Prince Caspian and the Dawn Treader, they get so far away from the text um, that it, it no longer is adaptation. Um, Caspian was almost an adaptation, but it wasn't an adaptation. I decided to call it a resemblance. And, uh, and then Don Treader, by, by Don Treader, I was lost. So I, I suppose on the one hand, I want to see the series finished because, you know, we got the, um, the BBC ones back in the what seventies or eighties. Uh, yeah, I yeah, watched them as a child. And we got through four books, right? And that's great. And it was cool to see Tom Baker as, um, Puddle Glum. So it would be nice to see the story finished, but I'm I'm also kind of of a mind to say, well, let's start over and gather a cast that's going to be with it for seven films and let's do, I don't know, 10 to 20 episodes per book and work us all the way through the books and see what happens. So I guess that's what I'd like to see happen. 
Whether it's going to happen or not, I don't know. I know that Douglas Gresham is very tight-lipped about this. Um, I sent him emails from time to time, and and uh, I don't really get much of anything about Narnia back from him. So I tend I tend not to ask. Maybe maybe this will inspire me to ask him again. And if I if I get an answer, I'll let you know um, what he might have to say about uh, upcoming Narnia adaptations. Well, when Matt and I have spoken to him, he keeps saying that he just hasn't heard anything. That's possible. Which, which is entirely possible, yeah. but it is very frustrating. It's like, yes. come on, <laughs> Netflix yeah. spent all of this money. I need to binge something. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my one controversial opinion with regards to that Netflix series, I am a diehard publication order only person, mm. but for the very reason that you said about wanting to see the other movies, I am actually willing for them to go in chronological order just so I can see The Magician's Nephew and Horsner's Boy sooner than later. Oh, wow. Jeez, I don't know if I can worship that way. Well, I, I like I said, it's kind of controversial, and I do yes. feel kind of dirty even suggesting it. But <laughs> I, I think I've reached peace that I'm actually, I'd be happy if I can just see The Magician's Nephew and Shasta, you know, sometime within the next decade. Isn't The Horse and His Boy uh, a book that just grows on you after many readings? Absolutely. When I was a kid, it was my least favorite. Yes. When I reread the series as an adult for the first time, it suddenly became my favorite. Yes, I know exactly what you're saying. And it's so important to read it fifth because it is a because if you take the first four books, they, they are books where the quests are clear, where meaning is clear and purpose is clear. And then you get into the horse and his boy and you're as lost as Shasta is. And what you end up realizing is that that book is the one Narnia book that is most like real life here back in our world. I shouldn't say real life because Narnian life is real too. But anyway, life yeah. back here <laughs> in our world. Um, it's like the book of Ruth where you don't know what's going on. You know that God is out there and that he's in charge, but you're not sure how he's working things out. But then all of a sudden at the end of the story, it all comes, it all comes true. It, it all, it all makes sense. All the prophecy uh, is finally revealed, and and you fulfilled the prophecy, even though you didn't know uh, that you'd done that. But you can't get that from Horse and His Boy if you read it too early, at least not as much, I think. And I think that's the reason why it suddenly became my favorite when I read it in my mid-twenties, mm. when I was beginning those wilderness years of trying to work out life mm. and looking for God when he seemed very, very absent or at least hidden. Mm. Well, that was a lovely diversion into Narnia. Uh, let's bring it back to uh, something that you've mentioned a few times now, which is your book, Light, C.S. Lewis's first and final short story. So for those who aren't familiar with it, what's this story about and why is it both his first and last short story? Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm happy to announce that Light has just been released in hardback for the first time. And... Um, is available on uh, Amazon in both hardback and softback form. Um, and I believe there's a Kindle version as well. The light story is very mysterious. A, a four-page manuscript on what's called fool's cap, which um, in America might be something like legal size paper, four sheets of fool's cap. This manuscript showed up out of nowhere in 1984 or so. Um, and so we're looking at 20 years after C.S. Lewis's death. And here's a complete short story with Lewis's name on it. And then the short story is strange because of what the story is about itself. Uh, the story is about a man who is born blind. His name is Robin. Robin is given an operation that allows him to, to see. And the thing that he was most excited about seeing is light. He had heard about light. He had read about light in Braille books and in, in books by Ruskin or a beautiful description in Milton of the sun. And he wanted to see light, but nobody could show it to him. Um, he asks his wife, where's the light? She says, well, it's all around us. And she and he says, well, but, but I don't see it. And she says, well, don't you see it coming from that lamp? And he looks at the lamp and he says, is that light? And she says, well, no, that's a lamp. It's giving off light. And he says, well, where's the light? And, and she says, it's all around us. And so what Robin doesn't understand and what his wife um, can't explain to him is that is, is the way optics works, which is we don't so much see light is, as light is the thing that allows us to see everything else. So Robin wants to see light, and he goes out looking for it. 
and um, he would go uh, on walks in the morning to try to find light. And uh, one day he's walking on the lip of a quarry when he comes across a painter. Well, he's never seen a painter before. The man's there with an easel and his brushes. And he says, what are you doing? And the man says, I'm trying to capture light, if you must know. And Robin says, oh, my, so am I. And uh, the man says, well, there it is. And he points into the quarry. The sun is just coming up. And the light is shining in from the sun is shining, shining into the quarry. And the quarry is filled with fog. And so the man says, there it is, real liquid drinkable light. Um, and that idea of liquid light is a very uh, a repetitive image in, in Lewis's writing in a variety of places. And, uh, the, and, and Robin is so excited that he's finally found light that he leaps into the quarry. And uh, he falls through the fog and dies. And that's the end of the story. So light then became this incredible mystery. Um, first of all, because of the manuscript itself, and secondly, uh, because of the meaning of the story. Well, then in addition to that, um, there was a uh, Lewis scholar named Catherine Linskoog who had claimed that the early version of the light story, The Man Born Blind, which Walter Hooper had published in 1977, was a forgery. She did not believe that Lewis wrote light. And um, as I said, she accused Hooper of forgery. I was presented then with a, a, a triple enigma here. Was this, in fact, a story by C.S. Lewis was an issue? Some of the early facts that everybody knew were things like Douglas Gresham had claimed that Lewis had read the story to him in the 50s. Um, so that kind of did it right. He was there and Lewis read him the manuscript. He even said back then, though, it was called light. So Douglas had actually seen the light manuscript, not the man born blind version. But, but um, Owen Barfield had said that the story was actually written by Lewis in the 1920s, possibly as late as 1930, but he didn't think so. Um, and he thought it was written by a non-Christian Lewis who was writing about what Lewis called his great war with Owen Barfield that had to do with a, with a variety of issues involving epistemology. So here was Barfield claiming that the story was written by a, not an atheist Lewis at that time, it would be either an idealist, yeah, it would be the idealist Lewis who believed in something supernatural, but nothing um, that you could get in touch with. Uh, he believed in, in kind of cosmic mind, but not in any kind of cosmic personality. In which case, though, the story would have one particular kind of meaning. But then if what Gresham said was true, then the story was written in the 50s um, by a very Christian Lewis, it would have a completely different kind of meaning, wouldn't it? <laughs> so again, I was presented with a real mystery. And uh, that involved then needing to go to uh, Taylor University to look at the light manuscript and work on transcribing it, um, comparing that to the uh, Man Born Blind version of the story, uh, visiting the Wade Center to look at some things, especially Lewis's handwriting, uh, going to Oxford, to the Bodleian to look at the original Man Born Blind uh, version of the story, because all I had to work with were pictures from the Bodleian. I had to get permission and and then the Bodleian said, well, we'll take the pictures for you, but we're going to call it, we're going to charge you $25 per page. Um, <laughs> and of the 15 or so pages that I needed out of the notebook. But then when I got to the Bodleian and was able to look at the manuscript, um, there is still, you know, the difference between the live text and even a very nice digital copy. Um, there just is a difference. So I was able to see things in the man born blind that you couldn't see elsewhere. Well, it became very quickly, it became clear to me that the light manuscript is authentic because the man born blind manuscript is authentic. The handwritings are almost exactly alike. There are little clues that indicate that the light manuscript was written out of the man born blind manuscript. And we can know uh, for certain that the man born blind manuscript is uh, authentic because it's in a notebook with pages and pages of other C.S. Lewis handwriting in it. Um, also, the notebook itself was looked at by uh, handwriting experts in Oxford who said it's completely authentic. Um, so that, that mystery was solved. The only mystery I didn't solve was where did the story disappear to after Gresham saw it in the 50s and then reappear in the, in, in the 80s? Um, I was able to backtrack through three booksellers, but then not get further back uh, than that. 
Uh, but the funnest mystery of all to solve was the mystery of the date. And after studying Lewis's handwriting quite a bit, I came to the conclusion that neither version of the story was written in the 20s or 50s, but that both versions of the story were written in the 40s. In fact, the mid 40s, and I ultimately concluded between 1944 and 1945 for a variety of reasons, which uh, you can read about in the book. But one of the funnest and most intimidating moments in the uh, in the search, in the detective work, was when I um, went to have tea with Walter Hooper uh, in 2011. And um, I told Walter what I was doing, and he said, well, let's talk about it. Um, because I was I, I was going to go tell Walter that I think he was wrong and that I think Owen Barfield was wrong about the dates of the um, of the writing of the stories. And this was problematic, not just because you're telling Walter Hooper that you think he's wrong because he's Walter Hooper, right? But also because Walter had had to defend Owen against the accusations made by Catherine Lidsko. So in addition to attacking Walter about the man born blind, when, when Barfield came out and said to said to Lynn Skook in, in writing, uh, I remember this story, it's real. She simply responded, uh, Owen Barfield is old and we can't trust his memory. Ouch. Wow, yeah. So so Walter really had to defend Owen. And again, I was going to go and say, these versions of the story, I'm pretty sure they were written in the 40s. Now, I didn't have my complete understanding of Lewis's handwriting worked out at that time, but I was still fairly certain that these were written later. So I went to visit Walter at his house. He was incredibly gracious. The first thing he said was, hello. And, uh, and then um, invited me in, then immediately started talking to his cat, Blessed Lucy of Narnia saying, no, you can't go outside. We have a visitor. Uh, so we sat and I said, look, here, here are images of the light manuscript and the man born blind will you take a look at these and tell me when you think they were written because they don't look to me like they were written in the 20s and and i thought he might take several minutes to analyze them but he but he only took about 30 seconds and he said no i think these were written much later in fact and i'm like okay thank you and so what walter suggested was um and and for those who know um uh higher biblical criticism uh new testament biblical criticism he suggested a q manuscript <laughs> and so um, he said, he said, Lewis loved writing and he loved the physical act of writing. And so he often wrote things and then rewrote them. And that was a pleasure to him. And he was rather convinced then that Lewis probably wrote several versions of The Man Born Blind, um, one for Owen Barfield back in the day. And then from that one, perhaps the one that appears in notebook number five. And then from that one, the light manuscript and Walter said, that makes perfect sense to me because Jack just enjoyed the act, the physical act of writing. He would sit there and he would whisper the words he was as he was writing them because they were for the ear as well as the eye. And then he would pause after six words or so and, and dip his pen and, and write again. And Lewis never wrote with a typewriter and uh, uh, hardly ever with a fountain pen. Um, he tried a fountain pen for a while, but didn't like it. Um, sell occasionally with a pencil when he was just doing notes. But when he was writing a manuscript, he used a dip pen because he liked the rhythm that pausing to dip gave him. You write a few words, you dip, you write a few words, and you're whispering them as you write them. Uh, someone has once said, and I would love to take credit for this, but I can't, and I don't remember even where I wrote, read it anymore, but somebody once said that C.S. Lewis was the master of the six-word phrase. That's because that's about how many words he could write before he would uh, have to pause and dip his pen again. That's all fascinating. This is wonderful. Well, let's talk about one of your other books, uh, The Fawn's Bookshelf, C.S. Lewis on Why Myth Matters. And I mentioned Michael Jehoski earlier, and I definitely encourage listeners to listen to that interview. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Uh, but in broad strokes, what's The Fawn's Bookshelf about? Uh, I, wrote my, uh, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on Lewis's epistemology, focusing on fact, truth, and myth in the uh, thinking of C.S. Lewis, something that comes from a sentence in Paralandra where he talks about those concepts. So there needed to be a, a great deal of look at Lewis's theory of myth, and I've been fascinated by that ever since, uh, probably even before the dissertation, which is why I went in that direction. Uh, 
One of the things that occurred to me a few years ago, though, is as much as Lewis scholars, uh, critics, and, and fans talk about Lewis's um, theory of myth, no one had yet bothered to write a book on Lewis's theory of myth. We've got lots of chapters in books, but no one had yet actually tried to write a book on uh, Lewis and myth. So I said, well, I think it's probably time that we do something like that. The impetus was actually a talk that I gave um, at a uh, Lewis conference for the, um, let's see, C.S. Lewis and the Inkling Society conference uh, one year um, in Arkansas, I believe that was in 2016. The uh, conference title was, um, Is Man a Myth? Which of course is the title of one of the books on Mr. Tumnus's bookshelf. I thought, well, as, uh, as a speaker for the conference, maybe I'll play with that a little bit. And I decided to take it even further and look at the other three titles on Tumnus's bookshelf as well, uh, where we have um, The Life and Letters of Silenus, Nymphs and Their Ways, Men, Monks, and Gamekeepers, A Study in Popular Legend, and then Is Man a Myth? And using that as a starting point, then I decided to do my talk on, on that particular topic. As I was riding along and really just getting into the project, I ended up having, you know, 30 pages of material and I wasn't done yet. Well, you can't do a talk at a conference on 30 for 30 pages. So I said, I'll tell, I'll tell you what, Charlie, keep going, finish out what you want to write here. And then um, you might have the beginnings of a book and then you can trim that down. So um, that then was the sort of the process. And once um, I gave the talk and then I had about 40 or 50 pages of material on the four books, I then went back to my dissertation and, and found just some theory on myth that I was interested in. And I uh, started working all of that together and weaving it together till we got a, a really good study on Lewis and myth. And it's, it's a little bit of a quirky study, which I like because in starting with the four books in Tumnus's bookshelf, I could do something that is a little bit of an end around. Uh, it's less direct. Um, it comes at, at various issues from, from, from the side. And myth often works that way, doesn't it? Myth, myth is not something that's trying to pound ideas into our head, that's trying to preach, uh, preach uh, ideas to us. Uh, myth, myth enters in through the imagination and um, suggests a multiplicity of meanings. And uh, so I really like the approach that I took. Um, there was one reviewer who didn't like the approach that I took. He wanted something more analytical. And I thought, well, that just misses the point of what myth is, though. Uh, <laughs> myth is kind of the opposite of an analysis, although you got to do some analysis if you're going to talk about the theory of myth. Uh, so that got put together with a really nice introduction by um, uh, Devin Brown, uh, whose introduction is probably better than my book, and I'm not happy with him for that. But Devin is really a top-notch writer. Um, and just a, a terrific friend as well. So there are studies of, of the four uh, books on Tumnus's shelf. Um, there's some work on where myth comes from in Lewis's thinking, the origin of myth, uh, trying to define myth, and then myth looked at from an epistemological point of view. How does myth function to teach us? Um, does it teach us truth or does it only teach us something other than truth? Uh, how does connect, myth connect us to reality apart from truth, things like that. And at the end, then, I threw in a couple of appendices, uh, one on Lewis's love of Norse myth. Uh, Tumnus's bookshelf uh, contains um, mythic tales that mostly come from Greece and Rome. So I said, well, you can't do Lewis on myth if you don't spend some time on his uh, northern myth. And then a, a, a puzzle um, that exists between two Lewis's texts in the final appendix, um, one he one in which he says myth is truth, not fact, and another in which he says myth is fact, not truth. <laughs> so, um, trying to work out that um, seeming contradiction in Lewis's writing um, is is fun there at the end. Uh, the the book is I think um, good for a general audience, but in chapter ten. Um, everyone's going to have to really uh, knuckle down and grab a, a big cup of tea and, and work hard through chapter 10, because I, I decided we had to get down and dirty in dealing with some of Lewis's deeper ideas when it comes to the way the way myth functions. I'll mention just one of those for fun, and this is probably the easiest of the bunch um, to get across in, in the venue that we're in now. 
And it is the idea that for Lewis, myth is not something communicated by language. Myth is language. Uh, myth is a mode of languaging, which can be communicated by words, but it can be communicated by anything else, like by uh, by film or or or, or the like. Um, and so, for Lewis, then, for example, a dragon is not just a beast in a myth, and it's not just the word dragon. A dragon is itself the language of the myth. So all of the objects and all of the plot elements you get in a myth, dragons, trolls, elves, hobbits, um, fawns, talking beasts, and then uh, plot elements, underworld journeys, uh, deaths and resurrections, finding the golden tree, finding the country on the other side of the door, of the magic door. Those are all the language. They are not, they are not things which we at attach words to. They are the language of the myth. And once the myth has been communicated as myth, the language can fall away. The language is not as significant. And so Lewis would say, if you look at the poetry of Keats, you cannot separate the poetry from the meaning, the, 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 the words from the meaning of the text. The words are as much of the meaning as the text. But if you look at the, the Norse myths and you ask yourself, who has written a great version of the Norse myths? Lewis's answer is, well, no one really. All that matters is that we get the flavors of the myths themselves. Um, and once we understand them, once we know them as story, there may not be any one great Homer for the Norse um, who has communicated on that Norse myth, but the myth then becomes the meaning. The myth becomes the language and it communicates things inexpressible that words can't otherwise communicate at all. How's that? I need a bigger cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that. It, it seems to tie in with the idea of myth being incarnational. Mm. The mode of the communication is the message as well yes. as the message itself oh i love that i'm stealing that myth is incarnational beautiful and uh, again i thank you so much for letting me um, share with you all tonight well thank you for coming on the show and listeners there'll be links to everything in the show notes and we'd also like to thank our patron supporters particularly our top tier supporters gary Stephen, matt jeff chris john james kate and rowdy as always there are pints of jack t-shirts available from the website pintsofjack.com and pints of jack gang carrying glasses available also thanks again to dr staff joining us today and listeners please join us again next time when we'll be going further up and further in cheers cheers <laughs>